Today on episode number 382 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Jose Bowen is back to talk about teaching change. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm thrilled to be welcoming back to the show, Jose Antonio Bowen. He's been leading innovation and change for over 35 years at Stanford, Georgetown, and the University of Southampton, and then as a dean at Miami University and SMU as a president of a USN and WR most innovative college until 2019. He now runs Bowen Innovation Group and does innovation leadership and pedagogy and diversity, equity, and inclusion consulting and training in both higher education and for Fortune 500 companies in the healthcare, energy, automotive, and telecom sectors. As a scholar, Bowen holds four degrees from Stanford University in chemistry, music, and humanities and has written over a hundred scholarly articles, was editor of the Cambridge Companion to Conducting, and an editor of the six-CD set, Jazz, the Smithsonian Anthology. He received a National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship and has a TED Talk on Beethoven as Bill Gates. In 2010, Stanford honored him as a Distinguished Alumni Scholar. Bowen has long been a pioneer in education, classroom design, and technology, featured in the New York Times, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Newsweek, PBS, NewsHour, and on NPR. Jose, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hi, Bonnie. It's great to be here. As we record this interview today, we wrapped up the first day of our new faculty experience. And as we are ought to do as educators, (laughs) I spent my whole lunch having the greatest conversation with one of our brand new faculty. He had on his syllabus from the prior person who taught it, a man by the name of Michael Sandel. Some people listening may know who that is. Others might not. Michael Sandel teaches political philosophy at Harvard University. And so I got to tell this brand new faculty member about his incredible videos that he has that also there's a book called Justice, What's the Right Thing to Do? And it's an incredible resource for educators. And so I got to tell him all about it and all the ways he might use it in his teaching. And what I was talking to him about that I find so useful about not just Michael Sandel's work, but so much of our work is before we get to whatever the premise is. So before we get to the premise of your new book, Teaching Change, is that Michael does such a great job of trying on different premises for what the right thing to do is. So he looks at different aspects of political and moral thought. So he he examines utilitarianism. And rather than telling you what's right and wrong, he'll ask you questions. And then we try on libertarianism and unfettered and all all these things. And then then at the end of his book, (laughs) you start to see glimmers of something that he's tried on that fits better for him and his moral thought and all of that. So I want to know from you, Jose, you 
you have had a career in this. You've tried on different answers to the question. And higher education more broadly is trying on different outfits <laughs> to see what works to answer the question, what is higher education for? And before you answer that question, would you talk a little bit about what we've tried on that you don't think quite fits? So I'll start with my own personal journey. And I think like most faculty, I started as a content person, right? Because the first thing you do is you're thrust and, okay, you're going to teach X next semester. And the panic starts and it's like, oh my God. And so I vividly remember thinking of a syllabus as a list of topics, right? I mean, that was, that was what we did. We said, well, what am I going to do week one, week two? And in fact, in the old days, maybe still for some, uh, right? You, they started with a list of topics and that was the first thing we looked at, you know? So I think there was the idea that, you know, content that we're trying to, you know, cover some material. And so I certainly tried that. And so like everybody else, I think I started off with way too much material uh, and tried to make sausage with students, right? Which is that, you know, you stuff them full of content and then you snip them loose, a kind of gross theory of education. And then I think there's a subtle move to, well, what I really want students to do is understand my discipline, right? There's the kind of disciplinary model, which is that, you know, I want you to think like a philosopher or think like a historian uh, think like a musical historian, in my view, or think, you know, in certain ways. And so that's a slightly bigger question of what are the disciplinary disciplinary assumptions? What are the kinds of things we're trying to do? What questions? And I, I spent a lot of time with this sense of what are the important questions that our discipline answers? That's really what we want. And I still believe that intro courses are much better suited as introductions to disciplinary questions than as repertoire courses. Right, because the danger we all have is we're going to teach, you know, art history. And so the student takes one art history course and they think, oh, I know what art, art historians do. They look at 5,000 slides a day. You know, <laughs> that that's what the discipline is. And it's like, well, that's a totally wrong impression. But if the intro course looks like that. So there's the understanding discipline. Then I think there's, there's the personal growth model, right? That what I'm really trying to do is help my students become, you know, adult thinkers, you know, master their emotions, right? To think, to become logical thinkers. And then kind of first cousin to that is when everybody knows, which is critical thinking, right? That we are going to turn you into a critical thinker, which has a number of problems. It's begin with nobody can define it or we don't define it. What does it mean? And it has a, another problem, which I identify in the book, which is that it's prescriptive, right? It's, it says, this is the right way to think, right? Critical thinking, whatever it is, however defined, is the right way to think. And if you think in the wrong way, that's bad. And so I want to get you to think in the right way. And that must be the way that I think as the teacher. And, and there's no way to get around, right? You can massage that and try to, but it's a hard thing if you say, this is the way to think, the way I think, that it, it's, it's convergent. It's not divergent, right? And so as an artist, I don't like that. I don't want all my students to sound or think like me. I want them to think in different ways. And so if I'm teaching critical thinking, I tend, you know, I can't help but teach them my preferred way. Then there's, you know, a couple of versions of what we now call leadership, but we used to call sort of, you know, moral education, right? I'm going to, I'm going to graduate students who are citizens. And the, the way that you become a citizen is that you have a certain sort of a set of judgment, a moral compass, right? This is clearly the way a lot of universities in America were founded, uh, even as seminaries. Uh, and so 
you know, that has some appeal, you know, leadership. I want you to be a certain type of person, go out and conquer the world. And I think as a teacher, I've probably tried all of those on. And I think probably all of us have. In one shape or those, those, those are those are big ideas that we, we're floating out of our consciousness. So tell us then, you tried those on. Some as- aspects of them fit and still do to you. I can see in your work glimmerings of these, but you have arrived at a different premise. What's the premise of teaching change? Well, the premise of teaching change is that what we're really trying to do is, right, and some of this is the musical idea, right? My job as a music teacher is to help you find your voice, right? Who are you and how can you be the most you you can be? But it's also about, but that, right, you know, I remember from, you know, freshman reading Augustine as a, you know, about biography and it's about, right, who are you was, well, who were you and how did you get to be the person you are? And that requires change. And when I became a president, I did a, you know, a corny little thing at the opening day, you know, where I'd say, I said, take out your phone because they thought that was funny and take a selfie, take a selfie of you today on your first day of college, because Four years from now, I'm going to ask you to look at that picture and go, who is that person? Because all students say, oh, my God, you know, I was this, you know, lame, stupid freshman. I didn't know anything. And now I've become this amazing senior. And so college students are aware of the fact that they change. And yet in the popular imagination, if you say I am here to change students, people immediately think you're indoctrinating them. Right. Oh, college is about getting people to think a certain way. and so. Can you merge those two ideas? The idea that I want you to become your best self and I want you to reflect and look at how you've changed and be ready then for a future which is certainly going to have more change. So, you know, education, in my view, has always been about change. But now when we live in what I call the learning economy, where the jobs of the future are really unknown and they could change you know, in five years, not in 50. And so what you're going to do has even less relationship to your major, which is good news for liberal arts, by the way, because it means that the liberal arts, the, the, right, the major is actually less important than it ever has been. Parents and students don't always know that, but I think it's possible to convince people that with the future as unknown, that you are not in college to acquire a body of information. You are not in college to become a leader. You are not even in college to learn a specific method of critical thinking. You are in college to figure out who you are and how you're going to keep changing for the rest of your life as you get new information and new data and discover that your assumptions were wrong, that things that you thought were true are no longer true, or they were never true, or the discipline has changed, it's the way it thinks, that that you are entering a world of uncertainty, which for a lot of people is scary. And so the the certainty or the 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 less scary thing is to know that I'm agile, I am nimble, I am able to change my mind. And so I think it encompasses a lot of things you had to start with. Right. It is about preparing for democracy. It is about preparing to be a citizen. It is about critical thinking, but it's about a specific way of thinking about what democracy really needs are politicians, but citizens especially who can change their minds. What the economy needs, what 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 corporations want are workers 
who can adapt to new conditions, uh, to new markets. And so I do think that the primary objective of what we do is to help students learn to change. And it turns out that's really hard, even if we weren't scared of all those words about change and indoctrination. I really love the work of Stephen Brookfield. And when I share about him and talk about, here's a man who has written more than 30 books about (laughs) teaching in higher education. But if you ever hear him speak or you read more of his books as he comes out of them, he, to me, epitomizes the idea. And he, we actually built an entire, a couple of years back, an entire years long event around the theme of becoming that we're never done. And whether we're talking about racism or whether we're talking or becoming anti-racist, you you never get done with that. <laughs> Box checked, all done. Right. Becoming more effective as an educator, never done. And of course, this also brings to mind the work of the researchers Dunning and Kruger, the Dunning-Kruger effect. I was yeah. just telling our, our new faculty member, which we have an interesting crew this year because some of them are returning to teaching and they've oh gosh, taught yes. way longer than I have. And so I'm teaching people that just got their PhDs, first time ever teaching, all the way to people who have taught far longer than I have. It's such a fun group to be with, but we're all explaining to each other, no, see, we never get done with this. We're never done becoming. And that's what I loved so much about your book, because it isn't that you're saying becoming a moral person isn't important. It isn't that you're saying becoming a critical thinker isn't important because please, oh, we need it more mm. than ever. It feels like to me, it isn't that becoming more personally self-aware and other, I mean, all of these things are important, but what I felt so much from what you've said today and also from having read it is just this emphasis on, yeah, but when you graduate, you're not done and I'm not done if I haven't equipped you to keep doing this for the rest of your life. Yeah, no. And I think what brings us full circle to where we started is that, right, if we start with content, we've just arrived at process, right? That if if content is going to change and look, you need I, you need concrete ideas to think. We don't mm-hmm. think in the abstract. We think with ideas. We think with real tangible facts. Uh, but if all we do is teach content, uh, it's kind of like, you know, giving somebody a fish rather than teaching them to fish. and so. The process is teaching a person how to fish. Um, I, I sometimes think, you know, as teachers, we have to make ourselves obsolete. My editor hated that. Our, one of the, my one of the readers really hated that idea. Like, oh my God, you're going to tell us we don't. No, no, we need teachers. But the idea is that I, I eventually want to be able to step back and say, you don't have to keep calling me for this, right? You can figure these things out on yourself. That 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 this process of becoming, as you so eloquently put it continues that this is who you are. You are going to be a person of becoming. And so we need to focus a little bit more, not entirely, but a little bit more on process. And so I I call this, you know, a new three R's of relationships, resilience, and reflection, because the old three R's, of course, were content focused. And so my three R's are process focused. And again, they don't mean that content doesn't have a place, but that relationships, resilience, and reflection is the process by which we change. You you need all three of those things to be in place. You need to understand how they interact and how they work together to change. And so this book, in a sense, is trying to explain to teachers how they work in the classroom, because in order to help students become those things, we've got to teach them. It's reminding me a little bit of a 
interview I heard, I'm going to do my darndest to find it for the show notes because I'd love people <laughs> to listen. But it was an interview that was done with the man who used to be his family and himself was involved in the Ku Klux Klan. And he talks about then going to college and how, oh, no, I wasn't there to learn anything new. I was there to spread this hatred and this belief system. Oh, yeah. And so including his professors, he was going to get in there and he was going to have all the right words and he was going to convince more people to join him in this quest. And what changed his mind, you already know how the story goes, even not having heard the interview, <laughs> but what changed his mind was not some wonderful lecture from the professor. It was not some fantastic cognitive argument from a colleague. What changed his mind came about through relationship. And again, I, I kept thinking of this article as I read Teaching Change because so much, I mean, it just resonated with me so much to be true. So you've told us then how, why it's hard. Well, let's, let's go back just for a minute. Oh, no, for please, a minute, please. Because that, that's a great story. And it makes me think, because if you tell potential students that you're coming to, we're going to change you, right? They just run, they run fling that, you know, so... But if I say, look, you know, you're going to change over four years and, and, and the, but the way that you're going to change is not primarily through the classroom, right? That this experience of being around new people that, that I, and, you know, we're often afraid to say, oh, well, that'll insult the faculty if I tell them, but, but you, but what you say is totally true that, right. I took that religious studies course and learned about the religions of the world. And then I had Muhammad as a roommate and, and I can tell you which of those was more effective in terms of going, oh, you really, I really do have to stop and think about this assumption. And so mm -hmm. uh, it is, it is too easy for students to, you know, regurgitate stuff on tests, right? Just everything about the way our classrooms is set up. And so relationships. So I do think that roommates and roommate selection, there's, there's, there's some, there's some information in the book about how we know a bit about how this works, but we're reluctant to say, let's, let's engineer this. Even though that we know that having a more diverse roommate freshman year changes who your friends are by senior year, and it dramatically changes your attitude toward other racial groups, which is part of why sports teams work, because students that are on diverse sports teams are much more likely to have healthier attitudes about other races when they graduate. And those who join, for example, you know, religious groups or, 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 or you know, they join Hillel or whatever it is, the Newman Center right away, those, those students tend to get boxed in and they don't have as many other relationships. They're not exposed to other things. And that has nothing to do with what happens in class, but it has everything to do with what kind of human being you become and what kind of thinker you become when you leave. So I think we have to think of college as not just the classroom. But what's happening to these human beings that spend four years with us and look unflinchingly at the research that often tells us it's often relationships and roommates and sports teams and experiences and study abroad that make the biggest difference. And students will tell us this and not which classes they took. And the truth is, most people can't even remember what classes they took by senior year. Yeah. It's so nuanced and complex, too, because I used to take that information and I used to, when forming groups and classes, make sure that there was one of <laughs> we are the world in each of, each of these groups. And then, of course, what you find out is you might inadvertently take a value set that says I can be more a part of something inclusive. People are exposed to people who are different than them. 
But then, depending on the type of university that you teach at, you could inadvertently perpetuate the kinds of lack of diversity that you don't want to perpetuate because you're going to drive away the students of color who don't feel then like they belong there versus I have had other times. By the way, I do not at all think I have this figured out. But when I stopped trying to be one of these and one of these in every group, it really did help in some times for them to be a part of their affinity groups, whatever that means. I mean, in, in terms yep. of that, that I don't we don't want to take this so far that educating and I'm just going to pick out the example, uh, educating white people about how you could not be as racist at the expense of the student of color, who's the one token person put in that group. And again, Really, really complex stuff here. Important for us to be both researching, talking about, knowing we don't have all the right answers because every class is different, every group project is different, but trying to do this better. Absolutely. There's there's a big difference between understanding that diverse groups do better work mm-hmm. and they, they outperform groups of, of, of highly competent, homogenous groups, uh, but they also take longer and they take longer because they have more conflict because they question assumptions. So so that's true and that's great, but it doesn't take into consideration that being the person in the group who says, wait a second, hold on, hold on. I don't think you're making the right assumptions. My people don't do it. That, that that's a hard position to be in. And that right. So those are two different things that, you know, we don't need to be the person who's going to educate the other people. And that is a hard thing. And, you know, as a faculty member who spent, you know, uh, you know, as, as, as the first the first of me in so many situations where it's like, oh, well, you can explain to us that it's like, no, that's not my job. That is that is not my job. Or, you know, you can be the student rep for that. I said, well, that may be closer to my job. But explaining to you how how all the people with my name or who look like me or whatever, that's not my job. And and that is that is something we, we really do want to avoid. But at the same token, we can't then say, well, then we're not going to do any engineering of how you know, campus relationships work. You know, it's, it's too easy to say, I mean, it's too easy. To get, I'm scared that I could get this wrong. And yeah, we, we, could, we could get it wrong, but we know that that's what's happening on our campuses and that who people become friends with does make a big difference in how they think. This brings us to I guess, continuing this conversation, which is what holds us back from being able to teach change? If that's the premise, we want to be able to become great at doing this as educators. What holds us back from being able to do it? So everything that we just talked about in terms of of why thinking for yourself is hard means that discussion is hard. And so, you know, as educators, we place a lot of faith in discussion, right? We think, oh, well, I'm going to get people of different views together. And, and you know, the premise sounds totally reasonable. But having recently had to go to jury duty, uh, I can tell you that, right, if you put a group of people together in a room and say, hey, what do you think? The first person who speaks has way more power than everybody else, right? So if the first, first person who speaks says, oh, guilty, well, I'm sitting over here going, I was going to say not guilty, but I wonder if everybody agrees with that guy who just said guilty. Now, if that person had said not guilty, I would I would have had a confidence boost. I would have said, oh, my goodness, everybody else agrees with me. And I would have been really stuck in the not guilty place, because if he says it, then everybody agrees. Right. Then all of a sudden, everybody must agree with me. Fine. So we react to the person, male, female, taller, beautiful. Are they in a group that we want to be with? Right. There's evidence that right in a class, 
if I want to be on the lacrosse team and I really want to hang out with those guys and the, the other lacrosse player in my class says something, I am both more likely to believe him. <laughs> right? I'm more likely to want to agree with him. Right? So all of the social stuff is happening. And it's all gendered. It's all about race. It's all about who looks like you. All of those things are happening simultaneously. So it turns out that, right. And, and look, anybody who's ever been to a faculty meeting know this is true, right? If you've been to a faculty meeting and you think, oh, this is just going to be a pleasant, uh, respectful exchange of ideas that will all be taken seriously, right? No, right. And so, and so, and again, the longer you've been with the faculty, what happens? Well, oh, you know that Professor Jones is going to hate this idea. And if I'm sitting next to Professor Jones, I'm probably not going to say that. If I'm, if I can see him across the room scowling, it's like, uh-oh, what's that? Right? It's not like we're immune to any of that. And so neither are students. All right. So one of the things we can do is to have students write position papers before class. Right. I'm a big. I love index cards. Right. Write the one paragraph position paper. Uh, polling. Right. So what juries do is they don't say, "What do you think?" They say, "Write down guilty or not guilty on a piece of paper." Oh, my goodness, we're evenly split. There are other people who agree with me and there are other people who disagree with me. It's very, very useful to know that you're not the only one. And if the first person who speaks gets agreed with by the second person, right, and then the, I, I become increasingly less likely to speak up, even though I may hold the majority view, but because it wasn't the first view expressed, I start to lose confidence. But if the first person agrees with me, I jump right and say, yes, I agree with it. Right. So 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 we've got to be more structured about how we approach discussion. Right. We've got to think about what should happen first, who should speak. So starting with how. Right. So our, instead of saying, what do we think? You know, are you for are you do you think he's guilty or not guilty? Right. Let's start with how this works. How does the Affordable Care Act work? Not whether you're for it or not. And so if, if you think about this. Right. So much of academia is built upon, well, your essay didn't have a thesis. We're supposed to argue for something. And I actually started to think as I wrote this book that we may have that backward. I know everybody hates the compare and contrast paper, but the idea that you need to argue for something does mean that you're invent, right? You're looking for evidence, right? This is not going to help you learn how to be a person who changes. It helps you learn how to become a person who argues for a position. And so I think it's actually right. This is called the, you know, the illusion of explanatory depth that we all think we know how things work. We all think we know how a toilet works or a ballpoint pen or a radio or a computer because we use one every day. Right. Or in the case of the toilet, because we know a plumber. Right. Well, she knows how it works, but I don't really know how it works. Right. So so getting people to talk about how things work, anonymous polling, preparing opening statements. Uh, but also, I think. Instead of being convergent, because students don't know why we're doing discussion. So I'm a big believer in rubrics for discussion, right? How are we going to have discussion? So here's the rubric. Here's what we're doing. What's the learning outcome? And then I let I, I divide students into two groups, right? One group talks, the other group, they award points, right? What's, what is the statement that was the most connecting? Those sorts of things. Or, or, or even just different questions. So how many different explanations can we come up with rather than, you know, what do you think of Hamlet? Right. How many different explanations could we come up with to explain this behavior? Right. Let's make let's make a longer list. Let's not worry about quality. Let's worry about quantity. Or can you think of both an example and a counterexample? Right. So so I think there are ways to, to have better discussions. But I think that we naively assume that discussions work. And I think the evidence is that most of the time discussions don't work.
they reinforce a particular who they the, the idea of convergence right and think about this we all like harmony right we think that the opposite of 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 conflict is harmony no the opposite of conflict is apathy we want to create more conflict healthy conflict and remember that conflict actually can only happen when there's trust so the first thing we have to do is relationships <laughs> right relationships trust community belonging once everybody feels that they belong right psychological safety we're more than willing to have the kind of healthy conflict that leads us in a productive i can then mine for conflict which is what good discussion leaders do right they look for ways that we actually have disagreement and do that sort of thing that students hate right but it starts with trust and relationships and then it moves to resilience in the face of conflict and then finally we end up with reflection, right? You've got to give students a place to say, okay, we had this discussion. Now I need you to think about, did you encounter new evidence, right? Did you encounter an assumption that might've been changed? Maybe not one of your assumptions. Because if I ask you, do you have an assumption that needs to be changed? You get defensive, You right? Did the group, was, was there anybody in the group who had an assumption that turned out to be false, right? What happens when we uncovered the assumption problem, or we asked a better question, because we can't start by saying, you need to change, your assumptions were false, right? Students, we, we don't, people don't do that, right? We just get defensive, um, it just doesn't work. So thinking with others is also hard because the, there's, there's this tendency to group conformity, to, to trying to get to the consensus. And so I think we need to think more about how do we get to divergence which is not the point of most discussion. And it's not the same thing as, oh, any, anything goes either. So what are the rules? How can we clarify these things? So that was more than you wanted. <laughs> no, I just love that. I love it. That I'm feeling that it's very meta to me right now. So there's what you're sharing with us about how valuable discussion is as a form of facilitating learning and that we sometimes give it more affordances than it may actually possess. And then what I'm also hearing you see a, a, a little bit on a different track is even just thinking about the kinds of questions that we ask and how we frame them. I have frequently told people to, instead of say, does anybody have a question, to say, who has the first question? So that's something that people have regularly said Wow, that really was helpful to me in my teaching. By the way, I think I learned that from my husband, Dave. So just so he doesn't think as he's listening that I'm taking credit. Pretty sure he's the one that taught me. Who has the first question? I just had a little epiphany on something related to that, Jose. And I'm 17 years into teaching in this context. So I have many times asked students before, over the summer, I'll always email, you know, here's the textbooks for the class, all that stuff. Looking forward to meeting you. And also before I see you, would you let me know why you're taking this class? Great question. Well, it hasn't actually worked out very well for me because usually I get, I'm taking this class because you're amazing and I had you before and I think you're incredible, <laughs> which I mean, of course, I love hearing that, but like that's actually not that helpful in terms of why I was asking the question. Or I get a, um, I'm an athlete and you were teaching in a class that fit with my practice schedule or my work schedule or whatever yep. it is. That wasn't really helpful information. I changed it and I tripped over my way to what turned out to be a lot more helpful of a question. So I said, I'm taking a class about personal leadership and productivity because, so I named the class, mm, that's mm. the smallest little nuance of a difference, but why are you taking this class 
versus yep. why are you taking a class about personal leadership and productivity? And then the second thing I did, which I've never asked another question after that. So I added an add on when I am at my most productive, I dot, dot, dot. More than half of the class has responded. That's never happened in my whole time. And I have rich, real, raw answers. And the ones I don't know are super excited about taking the class with me because I seem amazing. So I still got a little bit of the compliments and you know that, that they feel like they might have a good relationship with this person that they don't know. The ones who already know me still told me I'm so looking forward to your class, but I got the information that I wanted, which is why are they taking this class? And by saying this class in the past, it doesn't work. But if you actually right. name it and then give them just a little bit of it's essentially like, what do they even think of when they hear the word productivity? So I met my most productive when I really turned out well. So anyway, that's like you're getting me to that's think correct. just about the power of the tiny, tiny, tiny difference in how we ask questions can have a magnificently big different result. Absolutely. No, I think that 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 is that is something we, we can all learn that, that the way, you know, my favorite example, which I was not I was asked not to use at one of my corporate clients is the difference between uh, can you make a nasal contraceptive? And how would you make a nasal contraceptive, right? The, the, right, because the the how has optimism in it, right? What 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 are the things that you know that would allow you to do this? Uh, with one of my clients, uh, they make cars, and so they well, it takes us two and a half years to to make a new color, right? And it's like two and a half years. So I said to them, okay, so here's today's assignment. We're going to figure out a way. How could we deliver the, on the same day as the customer walks into the dealership? cars in any color, cars in the color they want today. So I, guess, I, said, I said, how could you do it? What would happen? It might take you 10 years, but what would you need to do? And by the end of the session, they were like going, oh my gosh, we could have like the mood car where you're like, it changes color when you put your hands in the steering wheel and you're happy and the car goes yellow. And when you're sad, it goes blue. And because the sweat, remember the mood ring? And it was like, but you know, two hours ago, you told me this was impossible, <laughs> right? And so all of a sudden, you know, creating that sense of optimism uh, of possibility with mm. questions. But as you, as you just showed, I mean, asking students about themselves is always the best way to start, right? You, you built trust first. You said, you matter. <laughs> and so I'm immediately more willing, you know, to ask. And then you're worried about the, the form of the question. So I love that. Those are both great. My recommendation for today's episode fits perfectly with what Jose and I were just talking about. But before I share it, I wanted to share quickly my words of thanks to today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. I'm, of course, thankful to them for sponsoring the episode and sponsoring the longest sponsor of Teaching in Higher Ed, but I'm also thankful for the tool and what a difference it makes in my own productivity. I always talk about these things as saving us time, yes but to free up our time to do the kinds of things that Jose and I have been talking about on the show, the stuff that has more meaning for me than some of the stuff that we might otherwise automate. And examples of what I might automate is I do all my email signatures. They all expand in terms of after me typing in what are called snippets using Text Expander, so that the different roles that I play can share different kinds of information. And yes, by the way, email applications do this but I can do it so much faster and more effectively with Text Expander. Everything from my work phone number that I have a hard time remembering to the show notes for the podcast episode where I repeat the same kinds of information. What's the episode number? What's the title? Who's the guest? 
And so you can have fillable forms that are really easy to set up and then have the blanket text expand and you can customize it in different ways. So there's all kinds of ways we can use Text Expander. And I just want to thank them for sponsoring. And if you want to try out Text Expander and get a little bit of a discount if you decide to invest in it, you can head over to textexpander.com slash podcasts. Thanks once again to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. This is the time in the show when we get to recommendations, and this one actually fits with what we've been talking about, so it's a nice transition for us. I read Ken Bain's tweet. It was a recent tweet, and I really got intrigued by the last sentence of his tweet. And if you're not familiar with Ken Bain, to listeners, I know that... The- I know Jose is, but to listeners, he wrote the first book I ever read about teaching in higher education called What Great College Teachers Do. And one of my big takeaways from his work is always the importance of failure. And so he's in this tweet speaking to researchers, but he could really be speaking to all of us, of course. He says, as a researcher, you're a learner trying to learn something no one else knows. What are elements of the environment you expect? Do you offer the same environment to your students? Why or why not? Can they fail and get feedback and try again, for example, before any scores are entered on their work? And it was just such a reminder to me. And I guess I, I, it really resonated from when I first read his book almost 20 years ago. And it still resonates today, all this time later. Are we giving our students opportunities to fail, get feedback, and try again? And are we doing that in a context in which we don't have to, you mentioned the evolution and all that, like our little animal pea-sized brains that are like, danger, danger, run away. Are we getting them out of the fight or flight that comes along with high stakes assessment? Are we doing it in a safer environment where this isn't a make or break move I'm about to do as I know I'm about to fail? So anyway, it was just a, I enjoy that he's on Twitter. I get a kick out of that and I get a kick out of the things he has to share there. So my recommendation is people go check out Ken Bain's tweet and think a little bit about failure. And Jose, what do you have to recommend today? Or you're happy to expound on that too? I, I love it. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue with that. So my, my recommendation is learn something new and, and learn something that you don't do well, right? First of all, it's humbling. It's good. So I play soccer because I'm terrible at it. And so, I mean, I like it, but it's also humbling and that's good. Uh, but I, when I was work, when I was first working on this book, I started to learn tennis again. And it really changed everything because I was a beginner. And so I was the student and I was like, no, 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 you're giving me too much information. Feet, arms, head, racket. I can't do that all that. Just one thing at a time. But the insight I had related to the book was that, you know, learning that as teachers, you really want to be the tennis net, right? That the ultimate teacher is not the coach going, you know, A plus, B minus, move your feet. It's the tennis net, right? Because it's like, you know, Ken Bain just said, it's about non-judgmental feedback, but it's instant, right? I hit a ball. I immediately know it worked. It didn't work. And I hit another ball and I hit some more. And so as teachers, we all know that there's a problem as experts, that it's right. Novices and experts think about things differently. And so I think, you know, be a beginner at something and then think meta, right? Think about the process. It's not that you're going to go teach your students tennis, but you're going to think about how did it feel to be a student? What were the things that worked? What didn't work? What was really essential? What does a framework look like? And, you know, the, the probably the first cousin to that is get away from academia because we live in this weird place, 
Uh, and so we think it's normal. And so other students come in and they go, wow, what are the rules? What are the convention? What am I supposed to wear? You know, what is this raising your hand stuff? You know, being in a different culture and feeling like the outsider can also give us empathy for what students are like and say, oh, I might need a rubric for that because I didn't, I didn't understand what the rules were when I first went to this new place. I'm thinking about what you said earlier about the Affordable Care Act. Mm-hmm. And that if we, you, don't I'm, try reading it, it's 7,000 pages. I'm sure, <laughs> though, you've seen the polls where if I say, well, how do you feel about the Affordable Health Care Act versus how do you feel about Obamacare? And they're just vastly right. different answers. And so if we can have that, you said that about us being the tennis net, just feedback. Do you even know what the Affordable yep. Care Act is? And then from there to teach change then I think we become something other than the net because we recognize the net has its limitations and that if you equip learners well, they're going to take you to places you never could have envisioned. So it's like we're all of a sudden off the tennis court and doing Frisbee golf or I can't, I can't come up with the right analogy here, but well, um, I, I think, you know, look, you start with, you start with the tennis net. The tennis net's a great teacher. You yeah. can't, you can't learn anything without the net, Yeah. but, but, you, but then you do need a guide, right? You do need a guide on the side. You do need somebody who's going to help structure. Well, Let's only work on the forehand, you know, leave the backhand for yeah. now. Let's, you know, serve. We will get to the serve, but not today. But I think eventually, though, don't we need just to recognize that they're going to be doing shots across the net that we never could have done ourselves? I mean, at some point we become we're in the stands just cheering them on. I mean, yeah. as uh, to, to Ken Bain's example, if we're talking to researchers, don't you want them to invent things you never could invent or cure cancer do, yeah. or I mean, whatever, whatever it is. It's a uh, yeah. No, it's yeah. kind of where we started that, you know, can can we both help them, you know, learn to change and become more of themselves? You know, can you do both of those things at once to help people find their voice, discover them? And that's something that, again, we as teachers, we often think about, but we kind of think it's magic, you know, and it, and it turns out there's actually a lot of research on what works and what doesn't work. But being a learner has a lot of benefits. Uh, one of those actually is it will help your research because you're you're going to discover unusual connections that you didn't think you needed. Um, and if you think you know what you're looking for, you might find the wrong thing. And so I'm a big fan of, you know, reading widely. Jose Bowen, thank you so much for being a guest on today's episode and many other episodes in the past. It was such a delight to get to read this incredible book. Thank you for your generosity as a writer and as an educator. And I'm just so looking forward to the next time we have a chance to talk. Well, it's always fun to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Jose Bowen, thank you for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, episode 382. If you'd like to visit the show notes for today's episode, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 382. And if you'd like to subscribe to the weekly email updates, you'll get the show notes from today's episode, along with some other recommendations just from my own browsing, not from the show, you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And thank you for being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. I'll see you next time.